Our Bible reading today is Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. Hear God's word. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer as we come now to study the Bible together. Our Father, we count it as a great privilege that we have the opportunity now uh, to hear your word and to look deeply into it. We pray, Father, that uh, you would uh, use this time for your glory, uh, that you would uh, speak through your word by the power of your Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would sovereignly replace our anxious hearts with worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. After I finished my undergraduate studies, I went off to live for a year in a country which had just recently finished the Civil War. My studies were spent in the company of Milton, Newton, beautiful buildings, easy friendships, and what seemed like endless possibilities. I got on a plane, and I landed in an entirely different world. There, every evening, we heard Kalashnikov machine guns go off into the early hours of the morning. One time, after a particularly strenuous week, I took a day off to walk up a ruined castle, what was known as the Old City, and I was greeted by a man who, who said to me that his friend had a gun, and if I did not give him dollars, bang, bang, panimash. Do you understand? In my exhausted state of mind, all I could think of was, it's my day off. And I just walked away. Of course, we could go home. 
Now, a few of us here live with that sort of stress, but we do have many other kinds. I rather like the sign I once saw that said, Don't let worry kill you, let the church help. <laughs> or perhaps you know the song, uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy, the popular song from a few years ago. It's got that rather annoying little whistling jingle to it. Yeah, you know the one. Yes, I can hear someone whistling it. Don't worry, be happy. Jesus here is saying, though, don't worry, be holy. (laughs) And he gives us four reasons why not to worry. The first is our nature. Verse 25, he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus is saying here that the nature of your life is not defined by whether you shop in an exclusive boutique, Harrods of London, men's outfitters, Justice, or some other trendy store, or a resale shop. A mannequin in a store can wear name brand clothes, but its nature is indescribably less than the most naked beggar in the dirtiest slum. So don't worry then whether your clothes are this year's fashion. Your life is more than clothing. Your life is also more than food. Jesus is saying that the nature of your life is not defined by whether you shop at Whole Foods or Jewel Osco or eat out every day at a five-star hotel. A horse is no less a horse Uh, if he ate uh, caviar instead of horse meat. And a person is no less a person whatever it is that they eat. You see, part of why we worry is thinking that we ourselves in our own nature will be defined by our material acquisition. That's the message that we hear over and over again. We are what we earn. And Jesus says, no, you are more important than that. Your nature is not defined by your material acquisition. It's defined, the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, by our response to the person of Jesus. That's what defines us. I'm reminded of the story of David Wilkerson and Nicky Cruz. Gang member uh, Nicky Cruz threatened to cut Wilkerson into pieces. You could do that, Wilkerson said. And every piece would say that Jesus loves you. That's what needs to define us, the love of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Now, understanding this aspect of human nature is critical to not worrying. If we think, it's an issue of our worldview, if we think that we are essentially material, That is nothing but atoms and molecules. In the same way that someone can look at a Rembrandt painting and say it's nothing but paint. If that's our attitude to ourselves, we think we're essentially material, we will worry. Because we cannot hold on to it and we cannot keep it and there's a competition for material resources, we are bound to worry. In the end, we cannot be happy by accumulating possessions, for they are so dissatisfying. 
cannot be kept hold of. I think it was John Rockefeller who said, I have made many millions, but they brought me no happiness. Or Henry Ford said, I was happier when I was a mechanic. So don't worry, first, because your nature is not defined by things. And therefore, happiness does not consist in your accumulation of expensive clothes or in your uh, experience of gastronomical delights. Well, there's another reason here that Jesus says don't worry, and it's uh, not your nature, but your value. So verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Famous words, but I wonder how much we apply them. Now, my friends, this does not mean, of course, that we are to be lazy. Birds work hard to find food. Or to be thoughtless. Uh, Birds plan for the future when they build their nests, I suppose we could say. Now, Jesus is asking us to compare the relative values of a sparrow, an eagle, a pigeon with a person. He's saying, look, you are far more valuable than a small feathery creature with wings. Now, this is obvious. Why then do we worry? Jesus is deliberately casing his teaching in questions, you see, because part of the hold that anxiety has upon our minds and our hearts is the negative feedback of endless what-if questions. What if the economy tanks? What if there is a terrorist attack? What if I cannot pay for my child to go through college. What if, what if, what if, what if? Endless asking, negative feedback in a downward spiral of anxiety. Instead, Jesus wants you to ask a different kind of question. What then? Given that the Heavenly Father is sovereign, given that he is good, given that you are far more value than birds, what then? Given that you're more important than small feathery creatures with wings, what then? Now, of course, you may say birds do fall from the sky from time to time and die, and that is certainly true. But Jesus is not saying that a bird never has any trouble. After all, this is spoken by a man who's making his way deliberately to the cross. Jesus is not explaining how to have a trouble-free life but how to have a worry-free life. What he's saying is that anything that happens to us will be under the loving purpose of the Heavenly Father. If your nature is more important than accumulation, and if your value is more than birds, then we are not to worry. For God, the Heavenly Father, will take care of us. See? Don't worry third reason Jesus gives us not to worry. Again, it's case and a question to break this negative feedback, sort of downward spiral of anxiety, what if questions with what then questions. Now, this third one is not our nature nor our value, but our faith. So verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. 
how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What does it mean to be a person of little faith? Well, Jesus is saying that the reason why we're anxious is because we are such people of little faith. And a little faith person is a person... Not uh, who does not understand the intricacies of a doctoral degree at Wheaton College, but someone who does not apply basic spiritual truths to common practical problems. A little faith person is a person who does not apply Sunday morning truths to Monday morning troubles. (laughs) So we sing, great is thy faithfulness. And then in our heads we are beginning to practice, great is my anxiousness. Again, Jesus is not speaking against hard work, for though lilies do not spin, they do photosynthesize in order to grow. Nor is he promising Solomon-like kingly garments, for the simple attire of a lily is more beautiful, but not more royal or more expensive. Jesus is talking about faith. He's saying, if you can trust me for your salvation, can you not trust me to guide you through your pension? Your daily provision, the welfare of your children, your romantic desires, your your, your exams. So to be of little faith is to have faith in Jesus for quote-unquote spiritual matters. But not for practical matters. It's to hermetically seal this experience and not apply it outside Whereas great faith is trusting in the sovereignty of the Heavenly Father and His loving care so that we are anxiety-free in business, politics, school, and home. Well, Jesus gives us one final reason not to worry. This time, not nature, value, or faith, but actually common sense. It appears in two places, and both of them are really fairly humorous, I've always found. The first is uh, verse 27, where Jesus says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The picture there is a sort of piece of string being elongated. Who could do that? Who can add a single hour to his span of life? And then in verse 34, again, common sense, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I love that phrase. I also rather like the realism of sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Have you ever said that at the end of the day? Sufficient unto the day is its evil thereof. Common sense is what Jesus is appealing to. The way that we know that things work. In both places, Jesus is uh, looking to our common sense. He's saying, can worrying about life elongate life? The answer is no. In fact, worrying about life can shorten life. Can worrying about tomorrow change tomorrow? No. That each day has quite enough hassle on its own. 
I like the story of the husband and wife who were awoken one night by the sound of scurrying and perhaps stealing in their home. The wife had been fearing a burglar, you see, breaking into their house for years. And the husband once more obediently got up again to check, feeling pretty sure that uh, he would again be apprehending the open window banging in the wind or arresting a mouse on the kitchen table or some such phantom of the night. Instead, to his great surprise, he walked into the kitchen and found a burglar. Good evening, he said. I'm glad to see you. I'd like you to meet my wife. She's been waiting ten years to meet you. (laughs) Or as one old lady said, I've had a lot of trouble in my life. Most of it never happened. (laughs) Common sense. So Jesus gives us four reasons not to worry. Each poses questions. You see, I think here the reason why there are so many questions this passage is because the nature of anxiety is to ask what if questions. What if this? What if that? What if the other? What is going to happen if this happens? And then Jesus says, no, 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 no. What then? Given that God is like this, given the Heavenly Father is like this, given that you are like this, what then? What then? Trying to reverse the negative downward spiral of anxiety, anxiety to an upward spiral of worship. What then? What then? But actually, Jesus does not only give us reasons not to worry. As powerful as they are, he also is calling us to an alternative focus. And really, this is the key aspect of this passage, even though it only appears in one verse. See, while society tells us that happiness consists in the accumulation of material prosperity, as we saw last week, Jesus has uh, taught in his Sermon on the Mount that actually we must choose between serving God and serving money, and that, in fact, we cannot serve both. And here he's applying that, therefore, I tell you, therefore, I tell you. He's applying that choice that we must make to underline how much we gain when we do serve God, not money, or seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Well, the verse is verse 33. It's so well known, uh, but uh, we need to read it out because it's not always accurately applied or realistically put into practice, perhaps not always understood either. Verse 33. Look down with me at your Bibles again for this key verse that is the alternative focus that Jesus is calling his followers uh, to fixate their minds and hearts upon. He says, for the Gentiles, that is those who do not follow Jesus, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to to you. That's such a well-known verse, you perhaps can sing it in a round and a chorus around a campfire or something like that. You've probably learnt it uh, when I was going for anxiety in that, uh, in that time when I was uh, on, uh, near a country, in a country that experienced a lot of hassle, I learned this whole section to try and help me with anxiety. Perhaps you learned this verse. But I wonder whether you've understood it. In fact, I had learned it many times and recited it many times before I really understood it. 
really grasp what Jesus was saying. The first time I understood it was when I was uh, reading a tiny handwritten manuscript in the Beinecke Library of Yale University. I was immersing myself in the illegible script of one Jonathan Edwards, a penmanship to encourage me in my terrible handwriting. And I came across this sermon on this passage that put the pieces together for me. Edwards was speaking to a community that had lots of business people in it. And the point he made was Jesus is speaking the language of business, of a contract. Or if you like to sort of uh, save and find good deals, it's the best ever deal, better than any blue light special. So Jesus is saying something like this, if you not only trust in him and in God for salvation, but you put the extension of God's kingdom and growing in righteousness first, then God promises something. It's a deal. It's a contract. To put his kingdom first is to put first building the church, discipling other people to follow Jesus, giving to the work of the gospel. To put righteousness first is to grow in holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness of character in your heart, but not just internally, pietistically, also in your behavior at home, at work. And not just sort of, um, you know, at home and at work, but also for justice. And if you do this, his kingdom and his righteousness, you do this, Jesus says. If you put first his kingdom is righteousness, God has a specific promise. He guarantees he will add all these things to you. Now you say, well, what kind of things would they be? Well, it doesn't mean we will never experience any trouble. Indeed, there is a kind of concern for the churches that those who love the church will experience. Paul talked about that when he described all the hassle that he'd had, taking care of uh, many different things, how he'd been persecuted, and then on top of all these things, the concern or the anxiety for the church. doesn't mean we'll never experience any trouble as we seek first God's kingdom, but if we are putting God's kingdom first, Jesus promises God himself We'll add all these things to us. Now, that doesn't make Jesus suddenly a prosperity gospel preacher, falsely promising sort of, you know, BMWs and Mercedes to those who are faithfully impoverished in slums. No. It means that Jesus promises abundance, fullness of life to those who pursue Christ-like holiness. Really, the prosperity gospel misunderstands what true prosperity is, which is not a Mercedes. See, Jonathan Edwards, long before that kind of false teaching, argued like this. If you put God first, then God guarantees that he will take care of you. Who would not take that deal? Who would not exchange a finite human watchfulness for a divine care and attention? That's an amazing contract, isn't it? I put God's kingdom first in my business, in my home, in my work, his priorities, his righteousness, then God is promising to take care of me. Now, I want you to notice this is not promised to anyone who just calls themselves a Christian. 
but to anyone who puts first the kingdom and his righteousness. Don't worry, be holy, we could say. And actually, this is not the only time in the Bible that God promises this kind of fullness of life to those who put him first. First Samuel 2, verse 30, he says, He who honors me, I will honor. You honor God, he will honor you. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, intellectual. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord, intellectual. And he will make your straight path straight. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. You say, well, if all that's the case, why do some Christians go through terribly difficult times, impoverished areas of the world? There's probably no easy answer to that, John Stock comments, but then rather nicely has this little aphorism. He says, but one important point should be made, namely that the most basic cause of hunger is not an inadequate divine provision, but an inequitable human distribution. And when we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, we can be part of the solution to that. See, I've seen... That sort of thing happens so often. When someone starts to put Christ first, they start to be abundantly provided for and they become an abundant provision. It's actually what happened historically to the Puritans. You sometimes get the sense when you read their writings and study their history that they almost became rather embarrassed by how wealthy they became. They sought first the kingdom of God and God provided for them. And the Quakers... A similar story could be told, and I've seen it happen today. One church uh, that asked me to preach a number of times was comprised of upwardly mobile, stable families, and yet was located in one of the poorest, most strife-riven communities in that particular city. It was a stark contrast. You go to church, you meet these lovely people who are obviously fairly well-heeled, you come out of the door and you'd be right in a war-torn area of the city. And I was pretty confused by this discrepancy, and so I had a conversation with the leaders when I preached there a number of times to help me try and understand what was going on, and they explained it to me like this. Oh, you've got to understand this, Josh. A few years ago, there was a revival. A number of people were converted. Some of us repented of our sins. We started to put Christ first in his kingdom. We started to reorder our lives and sort out the issues in our lives, and lo and behold... Our families became healthy. Our lives became healthier. We were changed from the inside out in the most practical of ways. So you put God's interests ahead of yours. It's a kind of business deal. God abundantly provides with the right definition of abundant provision. And as you keep on putting his interests first, so your abundant provision becomes one of God's means for the extension of his kingdom and for his abundant provision to help advance the cause of justice and righteousness locally and globally. You will not be able to give it away fast enough. Many times. I wonder what it is that you are seeking. 
Perhaps the reason why you worry is because uh, you have not adequately considered your nature or your value or applied your faith to real life or considered the common sense pointlessness of anxiety. Yeah, it could be that. I remember one person who had spent so much time worrying actually came up to me and said, Josh, I am worried about how much I'm worrying. Or perhaps it's because you are seeking another kingdom. The only way to be free from anxiety is to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Happiness is itself an insufficient end goal. Especially the pursuit of happiness is by success in sport or career or financial accumulation. Those things will not make you happy. Now, Jesus is not asking you to moderate your ambitions, to have lower ambitions. He's not saying seek only a little bit of happiness or less things or not so much success. He's asking us to have our ambition for the right thing, for the right person, to have a holy and high ambition for the kingdom of God, to seek that first, not a little bit, first. And then there'll be no more worrying about worry. Could be it's an indicator, your anxiety, of what you're really seeking. Think, am I merely a clothes horse, a coat hanger, or a granary container. A store mannequin can wear clothes, a rat can eat grain. I am neither a small rodent nor an inanimate human shape. I need food and clothes, to be sure, and that is true, and Heavenly Father is well aware of it, but my essential being, my person as a human, is far more than this. These material mundane necessities do not define, let alone exhaust who I am as a person made in the image of God. Therefore, there's no need to worry about them, even though we have to work for them, because we're more than them. Think, what then? What then? And it lead you to worship away from anxiety. Seek. Mark Twain once said, keep away from people who try to belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that, but the really great people make you feel that you too can become great. Well, absolutely. And Jesus here is laying before us a great, holy ambition. No halfway measures. First. You may think perhaps other kinds of ambition are ones that you should put first. Listen to the voice of those who have gone before. W. H. Vanderbilt said, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile, he said. Unless they're seeking first the kingdom of God and using their resources for him and his righteousness. 
of course. Now, it's true that uh, Donald Trump uh, remarked rather more recently to U.S. news, whoever says money cannot buy happiness just doesn't know where to shop. But I'm afraid he will learn. Your heart may be in caviar or tall buildings, and if so, that's all your heart will amount to. But it was made for God. Someone wrote this, money will buy a bed but not sleep, books but not brains, food but not appetite, finery but not beauty, a a house but not a home, medicine but not health, luxuries but not culture, amusements but not happiness. There's a difference between entertainment and being happy, isn't there? Religion but not salvation. A passport to everywhere but heaven. One uh, preacher put it like this, a man called Joet, the real measure of our wealth is how much we will be worth if all our money was taken away. For it will be taken away, won't it, my friends, whether treasure of relationships, connections, career, influence, or money, which Woody Allen, funny as ever, said was worth having if, if only for financial reasons. Humorous, but a tepidly hollow ring to it, only financial reasons. It will go. The kingdom will last. It will grow. And seeking it first, we can do away with worry. It's in God's hands. He has promised it will be so. Pity not the poor person who gives everything to God. Pity not the person who seeks first the kingdom of God with all their resources, who gives all their time and energy to the work of the church, who seeks the kingdom and his righteousness. Pity not that person. Pity the person investing in the world and its cares, shopping till they drop. For the world and its desires will pass away. But the person who does the will of God will live forever. Let's pray. Father, we asked at the beginning that you would lead us out of anxiety to worship. And so now we bow before you and worship you. We worship you, Heavenly Father, as a Heavenly Father, as a God who cares for his children. We worship you, Heavenly Father, as sovereign of everything that occurs in every way and at every time and in every instance. We worship you with this wonderful promise. 
We ask that you would help us to worship you by putting your kingdom and your righteousness first. We pray that we would do that. And so have no more worrying about worrying. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.